let's get started. Uh, and I am excited to continue another week in our All of Jesus series. Now, as I mentioned the first week, I recognize that our series title is a little bit corny and that the I love whatever phrase is a little overused, but the reason that I wanted to, to name our series I Love Jesus is because so many people in the church today miss what it really means to know Christ. Now, depending on your religious background, how you came up, what you believe about church, it's very possible that you were taught that knowing Christ meant studying Scripture, showing up for church, serving, giving financially, and everything will work out for you if you do those things. Now, in no way do I want to say any of those are not important. However, if that is the extent to your relationship with Christ, you believe a few things, you come to church, you do a few things at church, and you pray every now and again, you read your Bible every now and again, I want you to know you are missing the whole point of why Jesus came. So what Jesus is not looking for in our lives is some kind of religious duty, What he's hoping for us is not that we just fill our schedules with religious activities, but instead Jesus literally came because of his love for us, gave his life on a cross for us so that we could know him and more importantly, we could love him. So this is our fourth part in the series. If you've got a smartphone, you can follow along on Uversion. Uh, if you've got a tablet or anything like that, or you can just follow along on the screen. Our primary text today is going to be in John chapter 17, if you want to turn there, although we're going to look at a couple of other things. Where we've been so far in this series, the first week, we talked about the fact that Jesus loved us first so that we could love him. He demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners so that we could love him. All of the duties and activities and things that we get involved with, some of them are very good and some of them are not so good, but they are never supposed to be the thing that our relationship with Christ is about. Instead, he demonstrated his love for us so that we could love him. In fact, it's not just in our relationship with Christ that it works that way. Many times in your relationship with other people, it works the exact same way. You will often, especially as a Christian, have to choose to love someone else first And they may not even like you. It does happen. Just ask Deidre. When she first met me, she didn't like me at all. But over time, my charm won her over. And I'm very thrilled about that. So I had to love her first before she ever loved me back. Sometimes we have to do that with people. And it's exactly what Jesus did for us. The second week, we talked about the fact that people who love Jesus actually spend time with him. Now, we talk a lot in church about you need to spend time in God's Word, you need to spend time in prayer, and those are all very true things. However, we don't do them because we're supposed to any more than you spend time with the people you love because you're supposed to. You spend time with the people you love because you love them. And so when we love Him, it changes our desires and our scheduling so that we do spend time with Him. That abiding in Him is spending time with Him. And then last week, We discussed that when we love Jesus, he is more valuable to us than life. And if you'll remember, we looked at an incredible story of Peter and John as they're preaching just after after Pentecost. They've received the Holy Spirit, and they're preaching the message. And the teachers who had just crucified Jesus to get him out of the picture come at them. And because of their relationship with Christ, what they had seen and what they had heard, 
they were not afraid of the people that had just murdered Jesus. They were confident. They had courage. They were bold because they were in love with who Jesus was. And that's what happens when we love Jesus. I want to pick up with what I finished last week. And that was with the warning. So the warning to all of us is something that you really don't need me to to expound on. You know this is, is true in our world. The world is not going well as it relates to Christians. The world's not necessarily going well as how the world sees Christians. Now, I shouldn't be surprised. It's never gone well how the world sees Christians. But Paul wrote a very stern warning through Timothy to the rest of us of what was going to be happening in the world as time went by. I'm not going to go through everything we talked about last week, but I do want to read the first few verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Now, let me just stop there for a second. And understand that the reality that you and I struggle with a desire to love ourselves over loving other people is something that every single person on the planet struggles with. And when you completely commit to giving up on loving Christ and giving up on loving others, and you become a primary lover of self, you are in love with yourself, then all these other things that are listed are the things that begin to happen. They become People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. As I shared with you last week, Paul is completely warning about people inside the church. He's talking about people who claim to be Christians, who go to church every single week, He's not talking about people outside the church. In fact, there are some people that assumed he was, and so he was sure to clarify in a later letter, hey, I'm not telling you you need to completely separate from people who don't know Christ. If you do that, I mean, you literally have to leave this planet. What he's saying is you have to separate yourselves from people who say, I love Jesus, but yet act in all of these contrary ways. And so this warning is for the church. The warning is for what's in the church. And what I want to share with you today is one of the crucial lessons of this series. And it's one that you very easily can sit here and you can just go through these next few minutes and miss everything I want to share with you. But what I hope you'll do is you'll listen, you'll examine yourselves as I examine myself, and recognize that what I'm going to share with you is a danger for all of us in our own lives, but it is also an opportunity to embrace a love of Christ that will revolutionize the world around us. So as we do that, understand that when we deny Jesus, or we deny Jesus when we are lovers of ourselves instead of lovers of God, and when we love ourselves first, we deny the truth of God's Word, which is how that 2 Timothy passage ends, talking about how good Scripture is to keep us from those things. One of my big fears, and I've shared this with you, there are a couple of passages I learned as, as, a, as a kid that stuck with me. And these are two that stuck with me. It's one of my fears for those that are in the church 
what Paul even says, I struggle because I don't want to do all this teaching and all this preaching, and I don't want to live this life and, I, and miss it all. I want to experience everything that Christ says I'm supposed to experience. I, I don't want to do all of this in vain. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We live in an age where everyone has a very individual understanding of who God is, a very individual understanding of what freedom means, and a very individual understanding of what it means to live a life that pleases God. We're very individualized. In fact, we can see that we continue to become more and more individualized within our lives. We begin to push people out and we begin to focus more on just ourselves. If we're honest, even though we interact with people every day, and and some of you interact with people all day, some of you love that, some of you, you, it just wears you out to interact with people. You would love to just be by yourself somewhere. But as we become more and more individualized, what we also find is that our faith becomes more and more individualized. What we begin to see is that our belief system becomes more custom-tailored to what we want it to be rather than what is true. So as I begin to share with you a few things this morning, what I, what I hope that you will hear is that at the end of the day, there is one truth that is real truth. Now, there are a lot of truths that I want to embrace because they sound good to me and they make me feel good about myself and they allow me to do the things that I want to do. But there is only one truth that is real truth. And many people in the church are going to miss that. And many of those will go their entire lives missing this aspect of truly knowing and loving Christ only to stand before him in those final moments. And he says, "I, I, you don't know me. And I don't know you. Depart from me. For whatever reason, that stood out to me as a kid. And I remember it to this day. In that same letter to Timothy, Paul gives another warning of what is going to be happening and what we can see happening in the world around us. It comes in, verse, or in chapter 4, the very next chapter of 2 Timothy. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is one of my great fears for the church. We have some wonderful churches. We have a lot of wonderful churches. I don't mean that we have some terrible churches too. But we have a lot of really wonderful churches in our community. We have, some, we have some wonderful pastors who are doing some great, some great jobs, and we have churches that are absolutely packed full. We have churches that just barely are making, getting by each month. One of my concerns for the church is that we are getting so busy doing what Christians are supposed to do that we miss out on the things that Christians are supposed to be. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to be somewhat busy in my life. Does anybody else have that problem? You know what psychologists tell us about being busy? I, just ask yourself, when you ask somebody, how are, how are they doing? You probably get the, the same response most of the time. Oh, man, things are just so busy. Does anybody ever say that? 
You ever hear that? Whenever someone asks me, sometimes it just kind of rolls off my tongue. And then I feel bad because a pastor is not supposed to be busy. I'm supposed to be sitting around reading Scripture and just soaking in God's presence every minute of every day, right? You're not supposed to be busy. You're obviously not doing your job. If you're busy, you're supposed to just be soaking in God. You know, that's what pastors are supposed to do. But it often rolls off my tongue. Oh, man, things are just so busy. But you know what psychologists tell us about people who say that? The reason that we like to be busy, not just say it, but the reason we actually like being busy and the reason that we fill our lives with so many things is because it makes us feel important. See, I'm busy. And then when you say, oh, man, I know I'm busy. Oh, no, no, no. Not as busy as me. I'm busier than you. Let's break it down. Here's my, here's my schedule. Let's look at my schedule and your schedule. I am way busier than you because I am more important than you. Hmm? And unorganized, too. Let's not go, let's not go there. That's, we don't want to go there. We often want to feel more important. Why? Because we are so individualized. We have taken our whole existence and we have believed along the way that the world is supposed about me getting what I want out of it. And the gospel has, has succumbed to this in so many places and so many times in recent history. Many times whenever we present the gospel to someone, we present it in this way. Jesus died on the cross for you. If you will believe that he's the son of God and you will confess your sins before him and accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life, then he will take care of you and he will take care of all of your problems and everything is going to be okay for the rest of your life. And then that person who embraces that and gets excited about the fact that Jesus is going to take care of them and they're not going to have problems anymore. They lose a child. They lose a job. Or their spouse gets sick. Or things just fall apart. And they begin to ask themselves, why is my life falling apart? Why is my life not just going well? Isn't that the gospel? Jesus loves me and if I love him, he's just going to make everything go well? And so we individualize around the belief that my life, when lived correctly, is supposed to be fun, exciting, and pleasurable. And so when our life is not fun, nor exciting, nor pleasurable, we question the one who's supposed to be giving us all those things. And when we believe the gospel that says that's what God wants to do for us, then we begin to question whether we really love him because we first question, does he really love me? Why is he letting this happen to me? Why is this happening to me right now? When you're young, you believe that you're going to just conquer the world. When you're old, you just want to take a nap. You know, it's just how you get to that point. Thank you, brother. It's true. I'm thinking about my nap this afternoon already. I'm going to be honest. I, I woke up this morning at 5 o'clock, and I was, my first thought on my mind was, I'm taking a nap this afternoon. That was the first thought on my mind. That's how exciting and passionate your pastor is. <laughs> Can't wait for my nap. But as we age, we begin to realize the world doesn't work the way that we always thought it did. That if we try hard, it will work out. That if we just give enough effort, that it will all make sense. That if we do the right thing, other people will will reward us for that. 
But that's not the way the world works, is it? It's not. If we lived in a world where Jesus ruled, if we lived in a world where everyone followed his example, those things would likely happen. But that is not the world that you and I live in. That is also not the world that the apostles lived in once Jesus ascended to heaven. It's very easy to believe that this is all about us. And what 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us is that people are going to continue to embrace a truth that makes them feel good rather than embracing a truth that is actually true. And it happens all the time. What I want to read for you this morning is what has been come to be known as the high priestly prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus gave. And let me just get, give you some context here. This is a prayer, one of the last things that Jesus is going to do with his disciples before Judas turns him over to the high priests, before he's jailed, then tortured, then murdered, and then rises from the grave. So this high priestly prayer is one of the last conversations where he is not only praying these things because he knows this is a crucial time in the lives of these apostles, but he's also teaching them as they listen to him praying. So we're going to be looking, if you've got your Bibles or if you're on version, at John chapter 17. And as we go into this, I want you to remember where we've been so far, that Jesus loved you so much he died for you. So that you could know him and love him. Now what I want you to listen for in this high priestly prayer. This is, we're going to actually go through the whole chapter. So I'm going to go kind of quick through the chapter. But what I want you to listen for in this chapter, John 17. I want you to listen for where the places that Jesus describes his relationship with God. And the kind of people he wants his disciples to be what he hopes that we're going to understand and learn and experience, and then we're going to go out and express. I also want you to listen when we get to a place where Jesus is going to say, I want them to do this just as I do something. I want you to listen for those moments as we go through John chapter 17. We're going to begin with verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about the hour that he would be turned over, the hour of his death and then his resurrection. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, that you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may what? This is so crucial. As he describes eternal life, we've got all kinds of ideas of cherubs and prancing ponies in heaven and all of our pets that we ever had are going to be there in these super nice dog houses right off of number one Gold Avenue. You know, we've got all these ideas of what eternal life is going to be. There's not going to be any sorrows, not going to be any hurting. There's not going to be any problems. There's not going to be any cancer. There's not going to be any addiction. There's not going to be any of those things. It's just going to be just, you know, fun all the time. But the way Jesus describes eternal life is never in those terms. Instead, it is all in relational terms. That they, may, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's got, he had work to do. And what we're going to find is that work is going to pass to me and you. Verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
If you're wondering what is he talking about, if you'll go back and you'll read through the whole of Scripture, you'll find that Jesus wasn't born Christmas Day back in Bethlehem. But instead, Jesus has been around from the very beginning. In fact, what John tells us is that God actually created through Christ everything that is in existence. It was actually Jesus who was the creation engine of everything. As God spoke, Jesus actually created. So Jesus has been with him from the beginning. And what Scripture also tells us is Jesus stripped himself of much of that glory in order to come and be a man in the world with us. And so what he is saying is, restore to me that which I stripped away to come to this place. What I want you to know from this part of this chapter is that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ. It is knowing him. And as we've said before, knowing about and knowing someone are two very different things. I know a lot about a whole lot of people, but there's a very small number of people who I really no. I really know what's in their heart. I really know what they're like. I really know what's going on in their mind. I really know what their dreams are and what their struggles are. There are few people that I really know, but I know about a lot of people. There's a difference in knowing about God and knowing about Jesus and actually knowing him so that you have a relationship that you walk with him through the world with. There's a difference. And I'm telling you, if you are, have been looking for some kind of fulfilling relationship with him and you've been trying to fill it up with all of the activities that a church can offer, you've been missing it and you're probably frustrating because you don't have to have any of those things to know Christ. Some of the husbands in the room are elbowing their wives saying, see, that's why we don't have to come to small group. That's why we don't have to come to church all that much. Did you hear what the pastor said? I'm getting a podcast. I'm going to cut out right where I want, and we're going to listen to it over and over next time you try to guilt me into going somewhere. Eternal life is knowing God in Jesus Christ. If we go, go to verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have What? just comes back over and over and over to his word. Just as we discussed last week, and, and as we read through this over and over, you're going to see him talking about his word. It's incredible what God wants to do when we spend time in his word. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. In other words, I am praying in this moment. For those who are believers in the world. There's no need for me to pray for those who have not yet come to believe in me. But I'm praying for those that do. This high priestly prayer is what your life is supposed to look like once you know him, what our lives should look like now. As we keep going through, verse 11 says, I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world. Do you feel like you're in the world? Anybody feel like they're in the world? You ever get taken advantage of? Do you ever give because Jesus said to give and then someone's willing to take? 
as much as you'll give them? Have you forgiven people because Jesus says you're supposed to forgive and yet you have not been forgiven by them? Or maybe no one's ever asked you to forgive them. They don't even care that they've hurt or offended you. Have you experienced that in life? Have you experienced a world that is hostile to what you believe? Have you experienced a place where people don't just stand around and say, Mark, you're doing a good job. I mean, I can see you're trying hard. We're just proud of you. Do you find that people do that when you go places? I don't. Do you find it sometimes difficult to live in the world? I think we all can say yes at some point. I'm no longer in the world, but they are. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. I want to come back to this, because this is really what I want you to get today. If you don't get anything else, this is what I want you to get. That they may be one, even as we are one While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas, who is about to betray him, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13 says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I, didn't, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Have you ever wondered why that is? Wouldn't it be great if you got saved and all of a sudden you just got to go to heaven that moment? I mean, you didn't have to pay your mortgage anymore. You didn't have to go to work anymore. You didn't have to wait until heaven got here. It was just, it was great. I mean, you know, your family may miss you, and so maybe we shouldn't go right away, but wouldn't it be cool if we did? He's saying, I don't want you. I don't want you leaving this place. I want you here. I want you in the middle of all of this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What he's literally saying there is help them to continue to grow in truth. The process of sanctification is the process of growing in maturity and knowledge and love of God and Jesus. That is what sanctification is. He's saying continue this in them, not that they've arrived, not that they're perfect, but continue to help them to grow and to become more. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What I find interesting, especially in these last few verses, verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So you if you are a lover of Jesus, are no longer of the world. It doesn't make you an alien, but you don't fit anymore. Somehow you don't belong anymore. You don't just go in and act yourself and get accepted the way that you used to because you are no longer as the world is, just as Jesus was not as the world. We share that common characteristic with him. 
And for me, it's an uncomfortable characteristic that I'm supposed to share with Jesus. Anywhere that Scripture says I'm supposed to do something like Jesus did makes me feel very insecure, (laughs) inferior, unable, like a failure. Often, in the places that I'm supposed to mimic Jesus are the places that I recognize I fail most commonly. And this is often one. I think we struggle with this more in different parts of our life. As you get older, I hear you struggle less with what you care about what others say about you, right? Is that true? The older you get, the less you care, or you're just too tired to care because you're daydreaming about naps all the time, right? <laughs> I don't care what they think because I'm asleep, and they, I, don't know, I don't even hear what they think when I'm asleep. So, Whenever you're young, it's hard, right? When you're in school, it's hard when you're beginning to learn social development and you're beginning to learn how to have friendships and who are your friends and who aren't your friends and who you thought were your friends, but clearly, based on what you just overheard, they really aren't your friends. And so then you wonder, why are people treating me like this? We become very insecure very early, and so what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to embrace kind of the group mentality because when I embrace the group mentality, then I fit in and people welcome me and I don't feel lonely and I, just, I feel good again. As I share with my own testimony, part of the, the moment that changed for me when I began to know that Christ was real was a moment when I began to abandon that group mentality because the group mentality of the people I was trying to fit in was not a, a good, healthy one. So the things I did and the things I said, they were not healthy but I knew, I knew enough about God's Word. That's not the way I'm supposed to live. And so in that moment of realizing Jesus is real, I get to have a relationship with Him. This is not what He wants from me. And as I broke from the group mindset, you can imagine I also broke from the group. They didn't want me in the group anymore. When you're young, you struggle with that. And all of you guys are dealing with that in different ways because there are many people at school that are going to be telling you how you need to be if you want to be cool, (laughs) if you want to fit in. If you want to be one of the insiders, then this is the way you need to be. And many times, that's not a good person to be. For Jesus, he knew that. He was always an outsider, and it's amazing If you follow the life of Jesus, he has these moments where thousands of people come and are around him. They just want to be with him, and they're talking about him, and the buzz is everywhere. And like that, they change. He says something that they don't like, and they abandon him. At one time, he actually turns to his 12, and he says, are you going to leave me too? Because everybody else did. Amazing what happens when you embrace what is true. The world does not embrace you. And Jesus knows this, and Jesus has experienced this. The difference is Jesus knows what is better. He has experienced what is better. But you and I are still figuring this out. I've not been to heaven yet. Maybe if I could go, like, visit and take a tour, it would be easier. But I can't do that. And I really don't want to go visit too soon, right? I want to wait my turn. Jesus knows that this is the way that we're going to be. And when we love Jesus, we're going to find ourselves in an uncomfortable position that just as he was rejected by the world, you and I will be too. It's uncomfortable. If it doesn't bode well for our mentality that the world is about me. 
about my pleasure and about my joy and about me getting all of my dreams out of this life. Because Jesus never promises any of those things. What he also says is not only will we just as him that we are not in the world, but he says that we, verse 16, they are not of the world just as not, I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He was sent to share God's word, and we are just as he was sent to share God's word too. Just like the way he does. All the things he was for his disciples, we're supposed to be for those who don't yet know him. All the ways that he brought them up, we're supposed to be that. Now, we're not supposed to be their savior, but as far as teaching them, mentoring them, showing them what this looks like in a world that doesn't applaud them, encourage them for this. We continue to do this. What's amazing is Jesus still is constantly saying, it's about knowing me. It's about living in this world and showing the rest of the world what it means to know God and to know Christ. We, we start a journey Those of you who have been with us for a while know we've, we've kind of adjusted or changed over the years since we started as a church from those very first days. I don't, I don't regret those first days. We had a lot of fun in those first days. We did a lot of really stupid stuff in those first days too, but we had a lot of fun in some of those stupid things. I remember one of our most fun things was when we rented a snowblower and we were going to bring Christmas into um, the worship service. Any of you remember that day? It was the saddest snow blower you've ever seen in your life. We had less snow than we had this past winter. I mean, it was terrible. Just a little boop would go there and there. We had this big thing built. Hey, guys, come on. We're going to make it snow in there. I'd go to a ton of conferences. And, and I loved going to conferences because I would I'd be in meetings before we started Journey. I'd be in meetings at, a, at a, another church I served at, and I'd go in those meetings, and you know, innovation was not a word that was a good word. That was like a four-letter word in a lot of church meetings. And, but I would go, and they would do all these innovative things that would feel good, and they would tell me I was good because I wanted to do innovative things too. I remember there was a change somewhere in my conference-going time, and I remember going to one in particular, and it said, they said, you know, you want to grow your church there are four primary things you need to teach on you need to teach on sex number one i will grow your church number two money you need to teach on money number three you need to teach on parenting and number four you just need to teach on relationships and if you will teach on these four things these are the hotbeds in the church today to grow your church what I found interesting was, of all of the four things that I was supposed to teach on in order for us to grow, none of them were the gospel. None of them had anything to do with my relationship with Jesus Christ or anybody else's relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that anybody that does those, because we do, we do talk about that stuff in different series. I'm not saying you should never do it. But what I found in many of the conferences that are going on today is that the purpose is to grow a big church, not to grow followers of Jesus. And the reason that is, 
is because many have embraced this idea that we're supposed to give you what you want. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the desire for me to believe that I'm the center of the world. And you're not the only one who struggles with it. I'd like to say you are. I'm a preacher. I don't struggle with that stuff. But I love being the center of the universe. I love it. I love to walk in and I love for everybody to do what I want to do. I love it. I love it when the band does all the music that I want them to do, which they still have not done Life is a Highway, still a sore point. Eight years I've been asking for that song. Still hasn't happened. I digress. I digress. I love being the center of the world. I love when I come home and my kids just sit around, and this happens all the time. They just sit around and look up at me and just let me just expound on life to them, and they soak it in, and it's wonderful. It's what I always thought parenting was. Then they started walking, and that all changed, you know. (laughs) I love being the center of the universe. I love reading scripture that says, Mark, you are loved. You are good. God will give you all the desires of your heart. I mean, it's going to be wonderful your entire life. I love those scriptures. And I hate the ones that say stuff like, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. hate those verses. I love the ones that make the world about me. And what we have found is, and I don't, we are not any better than anybody else. Whenever we say these things, we certainly come across that way. We feel that way. We are not. We make our, we just make different mistakes. What I have found is that the world and the church has embraced the idea that somehow we need, we need to give people what they want. But that was never a mindset that Jesus shared And every time the crowd would come because he was giving them what they wanted, he would push truth out there and that was uncomfortable and they would run. Why am I telling you this? Why am I saying all this stuff? Whenever we embrace anything that feels good to us but is not true, it will disappoint us. When we embrace, embrace anything about Jesus that is not true, it will disappoint us. Whenever we embrace the idea that somehow we are the kings of our own kingdoms, it will disappoint us. We won't experience the things that we read we're supposed to experience, like joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We won't experience those things because those things come through the Holy Spirit, not by me being the center of my universe. Sometimes kindness is not something that comes naturally for some of us. Sometimes I don't feel so kind. But instead, I act in kindness as a choice of my will, not because I feel kind at that moment. Right? But in those moments, the Holy Spirit is helping me to do that. It's amazing what Jesus is trying to show us through this, that whenever we love him, we will become like him. Let's move on. Verse 20 in John 17 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's everybody in the future. 
that will ever come to believe. But listen, I want you to hear what he's saying. This is what he's saying he wants for us. He's talking directly to you at this moment, okay? This is the part of the prayer that he's saying, so this is what my hope for the future of the church is going to be. This is for you and this is for me. He says in verse 21, that they may all be what? One. Can, can two be one? Or are two, two? That's deep, isn't it? Deep theology right there. It took me a long time to come up with that. If I believe I'm the center of the universe, and you believe you're the center of the universe, and I'm praying over here that, God, this is what I want to see happen, and you're praying over here that you want this to happen, and they're not the same thing, then who does God answer? See, many of us, we go through life believing that somehow God's supposed to answer all my prayers. He's supposed to give me all the things that I want because we still believe that we are the center of the universe. Everywhere that Scripture talks about you, it talks about you in the context of a community, you in the context of the church, you in the context of the body of Christ. Never does it separate you out that somehow you are going to be different from everybody else in the body. Instead, you will be one of the one We will all be united together in one community, which means God may actually make me sacrifice to give you something that you need. Does not feel good if I'm the center, if if I want to be the center of my universe. I want you to sacrifice for something that I need. But God will actually take from you to give to someone else. Sometimes that's financial and sometimes that's time. One of the ways that we see that is. Whenever our kids' ministry, when someone puts a, a requester and says, hey, I'm scheduled for this day, but, but you know, I, we've got something that's come up. And, and then when I start seeing emails coming in saying, oh, I can help, or I can help, or I'll switch with you here, or I'll do that, I'll take care of you there. Well, I don't know what they had planned for that day. But they're giving of themselves to help someone who's in need at that moment. Maybe it is more physical. Maybe you're walking down and you know someone's struggling financially. They need some help. And so instead of going and going out to eat with whatever cash you have left over from your paycheck for the week, you say, you know what, they need this. And you sacrifice to give to them. If you have to be the center of your universe, you will never do that. Because that's for me. That's for my enjoyment. That's for me to experience what I want out of this life. But what Jesus is saying here is what I most want for the church moving forward is not a whole bunch of individual people. What I want is for them to be one. Just bring them together. Make them rely on each other. Encourage each other. Help each other. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why are we one? Because we communicate the gospel that way. We show people how this works by being together as one. Verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You see, it is our unity, not a word that often describes the church. 
but it is our unity that demonstrates our love for the one who brought us together. I know it's not easy to be unified. We have different opinions. We could just go around the room and say, well, who did you vote for? That would be a fun, unifying experience. (laughs) How do you feel on the big issues of today? That would be another one. We would all walk out one big happy family hugging each other, I'm sure. If we were to say, hey, this would be fun. Could you all just bring up all your tax forms and all of your income statements and everything that you have, and let's just spread it out over the table and see who has something, and let's can just divvy it up so we all have the same amount. That would be fun, wouldn't it? It depends on where you are on the spectrum, right? Well, if I'm down here, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's do it. And if your income is up here, you're thinking, I don't know, that's just not, I don't know, it's a good idea. That's the way they did it in Acts. Interestingly enough, we don't do that. If you're our guest here today thinking, I've got to get out of this place quick. We don't do that. We're not going to ask you for any of that information, I promise. But that's the way they did it in the early church. Because they actually believed in unity of the body together, that they would be one together. If you want, if you want to mess with your theology... Just read the Old Testament. You know, one of the big problems with the Old and New Testament is that we believe the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. But God still says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means the same God who acted in the Old Testament is the same God who acted in the New Testament. If you want to mess with your theology, if you're a New Testament-only kind of person, read the Old Testament, and I will tell you, it will knock you off your feet. When you begin to see how God has worked from the beginning, you will begin to realize God is so much bigger than I've given him credit for. It's amazing how God works in the Old Testament. God has chosen us to be unified, and he has chosen us to work in community. When we work in community, it changes everything. Whenever we begin to realize, I'm not, just, I'm not just responsible for you, I'm responsible to you, then it changes our relationship. What I have found is there are not a lot of people that are okay with that kind of relationship. And there, quite honestly, are not a lot of people that attend church that want that kind of relationship. They want to come, and they want to experience a good service that doesn't last too long and doesn't put them to sleep. And they have other people around that are like them, and then they can go about their business. That's, a, that's kind of what a lot of people are looking for. That's why so many people jump from church to church. I, this was not doing it for me anymore. I'm going to go over here, and maybe this church will do it for me. And I understand how that goes. I really do understand how that goes. I remember when Deidre and I were in seminary, and we had to look for a church. We had moved to Texas. It was our you know, first time as a couple looking for a church. We had a church. We had both grown up in churches, and so I just started going to her church whenever we got married because we were still in the same town. And then when we moved, we had to find a church. And I went through every single thing that every other person who ever looks for a church goes through. We looked around at the facility. Do I like the facility? Uh, you know, is the is the music the kind of music that I I like and I enjoy and I feel like I can worship to? Uh, you know, is the teacher, is the guy that's doing the preaching, does he put me to sleep, or do I get anything out of his message? 
And then, you know, we would kind of spread out from there. There are other people like us. Is there a class that we can go to with people that we like to do stuff with? But my lens through all of those things had to do with what do I want out of this place? Now, as a pastor, of course, my, my perspective is different. But I have found that this was the perspective that Jesus wanted all along. Rather than asking what, what do I get out of this? Is this a place that I like? The question would be better, what does God want me to put into this place and into these people? I get it. I mean, it, you, you're not going to go to a place that, that you just can't stand whatever is going on in the worship service. I don't mean that you just need to say, hey, I'm, we're going to go here and, and I'm just going to give and serve and we're miserable, but we're going to give and serve. I'm, I don't mean that. But there is a part of us that we have to embrace the idea that the community is supposed to care for itself and more than looking for what someone's going to give to me because that's the, I'm the center of the universe mentality. Instead, is what do I have to give to others? I'm just one of the one. That's the one of the one mentality. I have something to give. I have something to offer. They, these are my people. I have something to be responsible to them for. God has chosen to work in community, which means God may work in our community to take care of someone who is in need, but another part of the community is going to have to sacrifice to make that happen. We have that happen here financially. Someone comes on hard times, and a group that is close to that individual comes together and helps meet the needs for that person. We've done that more than once. They have to give up something in order for this person to have what they don't yet have. They believe that they are one. What does it look like for you to be one, to be, to be working in community? Let's finish up chapter 17, because my nap is calling. Isn't that, isn't that spiritual? Y'all don't tell people I say these things, right? We cut them out of the podcast. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them, that we would have within us the same love that Jesus had. He just keeps coming back to that over and over and over again, keeps coming back to this. He wants us to experience love for each other. He even goes so far as to say people will want to become followers of Jesus because of the way we love each other. Can that really be said about the church as, as, at large today? Does the world really go, man, those people really love each other? No. I mean, some of us don't even love each other in the room right now, right? We won't point that out. But some of us don't even really like them. That's why we sit on opposite sides of the room. Maybe that's not, I don't know of anybody that, maybe that's not here. But it, statistically, it probably is. The truth that we take from this is that when we love Jesus, we will share it with others. We will share it with others. We've got to get to a place where we are no longer trying to get everything out of this world for ourselves. Because when we do that, we completely miss the thing that is better than any of that. Knowing and loving Jesus. 
We've got to get to the place where we recognize this is all about knowing and loving Jesus. It's not about anything else. It's one of the things that we've embraced as a church to say, you know what? There are some things we could do and probably get a lot more people to come here. But we don't want to do those things because we want people who come here to learn how to know and to love Jesus. And we have found that there are a lot more people that like a really good show more than they really want to know how to know and love Jesus. And I I hate to say that, but that is the truth that we see over and over and over again. We've got to know and love Jesus. That is so important. Let Let me just ask you this. Because I know sometimes these kind of abstract sermons are just like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. But do you feel when you get up in the morning, do you feel compelled that today you're supposed to love some other people? When you walk in on Sunday morning, do you go, these are my, I, I love these people. Now, some people it's easy to love. We're so glad Gene's back. It's easy to love Gene. Why? Because Gene so easily loves us. It's so easy to do that. Some of us are not so easy to love, and I recognize I fall into that category as well. But do you walk in thinking, how can I love these people today? See, that's the way Jesus acted. That's the way the church acts in unity and becomes one. We love each other, and we say, oh, man, what do I have? What can I, what can, how can I love them today? Which changes how we decide whether we're going to church, right? <coughs> when I was, when we were in seminary, trained to be a pastor because we were very spiritual. <clears throat> I like to miss church. I didn't like going to church. I'm going to class like every day. I go to class. I'm about spiritual stuff. That's good enough. Let's just get the sleep in. I love sleeping in. I still do, actually, if I'm honest today. I love sleeping in on Sunday mornings. doesn't happen very often. I still love it, just like any of you love it. But it, if we say, I, I need to love those people today, it changes the way we decide when we're going to church. And even though every statistic out there from every major statistic organization will tell us people just don't go to church every week anymore. It just doesn't happen anywhere. I mean, anywhere. There's no definable group that still worships every week together. They come once every month or once every six months or something like that. And some people, they'll leave, we won't see them for weeks. And then they just show up and I'm like, where did you go? I don't just be kind of busy, but I'm back. And that's fine when major life events happen. But when it's just been a long week, do you feel compelled to love each other? Sometimes I'll think in my own head, you know, we've been so busy. We just need some time with our family. But the truth is, if I feel compelled to love our church like you're my family, then whenever I need to spend time with family, that's you. Not just my biological family or the ones that I'm contractually required to spend time with because we got married. <laughs> Let's be honest. If we are a family, this is family time. And the reason that we do small groups is because you're all sitting there and nice looking at me, and it makes me feel very important. I like it. But you haven't told me anything about how your week went this week. This is very one-sided. But small groups is not. That's where we talk to each other. That's why we love small groups. We feel compelled to love each other. Let me ask you this, another one, harder question. Would you die for the person sitting next to you? Maybe, if they're a family member. But what about you that got stuck on the end and you had to sit next to somebody you don't know? Because you, you know, didn't plan that very well. Would you die for them? 
there's some people I would die for, but there's some people that I think, well, let's test it out. <laughs> let's see what I would do. Let's put them in that situation. They're kind of frustrating anyways. Would you die for the person that you're sitting next to? That's what Jesus is asking us. Do you feel responsible to the person that you're sitting next to? Like you have a responsibility to them? Do you really believe that we are one? Or are we a bunch of individuals here in a room together? Are we one? Do you feel responsibility to them? When you serve, let's be honest. When you get the email, this is my week to serve, do you go, yes? Or do you go, oh, man. Have we got something going on this weekend? Can we have something going on this weekend? I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. I don't want to serve. Is serving an act of love or is it just a tiring duty? I don't... I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip because there are some Sundays that I sit up here and go, I'm so tired. I feel everything you all feel. I'm not, I'm not trying to make us feel like we've got to always be super excited about every little thing every time, but we should overall feel that our service is an act of love, not just our duty. Here's what I want to leave you with. When we love Jesus, we have no choice but to deeply love each other. When we love Jesus, we have no choice but to deeply love each other. By loving Jesus, we will love each other. It's just a part of who we are. And the thing I wanted you to get that I said, you know, you, may, you can easily just let this go and miss it, is, is this, that we often interpret our scripture when we read it, we often interpret it based on the belief that my faith is about me instead of my faith is about us. And if you will read the Old Testament, you will find time and time again, especially through the nation of Israel, you will find that God will act in the best interest of the nation even when it costs someone in that nation. Look at the story of Saul. Look at the story of David. Look at many of the stories of David. When God is doing what is best for the one, there are times that individuals do not feel valued. But when we embrace the idea that loving Jesus is to be just one of many, then it changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see each other. It changes the way we see Jesus. So I want to encourage you As you think about your relationships with your church, or if you're a guest, as you think about getting involved in a church, whether it's our church or another church, can you deeply love these people? That's what he's calling us to. And I'm telling you, if we embraced this idea, it would revolutionize the church. Really revolutionize. It would just put us right back to where we were when the church was established that we've wandered away from. That's where we would be. As we close, we're going to have a time for our offering, and we're going to have one more um, song to worship with together. And as we do that, I also I want to recognize that some of you are here today, and it is very hard to think about loving someone else. 
uh, because honestly, you're a person right now in need of love. And I, I, want, I want to tell you that this is one of the ways that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, works in our lives. And so I want to pray for you, and I want to just offer that if you would like somebody to pray for you as well, I'll, I'll stand up here and come up and let me pray with you. As you leave this room, it would be cool if you look for a way to show love to somebody else. And, and that can be in, in really non-awkward ways. There are some awkward ways to do that. There are some non-awkward ways to do that. An encouragement. How are you doing today? Taking a moment, because I know I'm, I'm running over. You guys have got to get to lunch, but taking your time to talk to somebody. You know, there are ways that you can do that. When you go pick up your kids, tell them, because they know I'm running late too right now. Tell them, thank you for what you're doing for my kids. There are way, all, so many ways to show love to people. Some of you may need a, a, a deeper way. You may need somebody to just listen to your story. You may need somebody to just care for you and hug you and somebody to say, we are here for you. Whatever you need, we want to offer that if we can. For those of you who are just, you, I know some of you have been kind of captivated by this idea of falling in love with Jesus again. You can right where you are pray that God will expand your heart to love him more. It's amazing. That's part of sanctification. He will do it. So would you pray with me? And then we'll close with, with our last song. Father, God, I thank you for so many wonderful examples in this room who humbly give of themselves and remind us all that following you means that the world doesn't revolve around us. The world revolves around you. Father, I pray that you would help us to not view our lives as just ours, but that we belong to someone else. I pray that we would not saturate our prayers with just our own hopes and desires for our own lives, but we would saturate our prayers for our hopes and desires for others, not just those in the church, but for those outside of the church that don't even know you. I pray that, that our hearts would expand, that our love would expand. Father, I pray that you would help us to become the people that you prayed for on that night. That just as you gave yourself for them, we will give ourselves for them. Just as you shared the truth of God's word, that we would share the truth of God's word, even when it's rejected. Just as you consistently and confidently proclaim the love of God, that we would consistently and confidently proclaim that love through our own lives. I pray that as a church, I, I thank you for the many wonderful, loving people and relationships that are in this room. I pray that you would, I pray that your Holy Spirit would settle upon us so that we could love each other more completely, more fully, and we could become the people that you always wanted your church to be. Father, I pray for a movement in our city that our churches would come together in unity, that we would recognize we are brothers and sisters of the same family, and even if we worship in different places, we are going to be in heaven together. Father, I pray that as people see us here and then as we leave here, as we're out and about in the community, they would see a love between us that would cause them to question their own belief in the world. And that we could break down those walls so that they could come to the place of truly knowing you. Father, you have said that in your word that we will love each other if we are following you. And I pray that you would help us to do that because on our own we are incapable, but through your Spirit we can do anything. 
Help us to be your disciples, to follow you and to love you. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you first loved me. Help me to share that with those around me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.